I don't think that there can be a peace here without justice. We tried to do that. We tried to freeze this conflict after 2014 and it didn't work. There has to be a just conclusion for the peace to hold. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, November 17th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to break down a dramatic week in Ukraine, which saw the withdrawal of Russian troops from one of its largest cities, a new round of bold talk from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and questions about which country was responsible for a missile that landed in Poland, killing two people. And later on, Alex Bigler is here to ask Bill Cohan about his new book released this week, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, about GE. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. Julia, I want to start. Actually, I'm going to let you tell me where to start because the two big developments here are, and they feel related. One, Russia beginning last week, started to pull out of Kherson, which is the basically the only regional capital, I believe, that Russia has, has, has been able to occupy since the beginning of the war. Ukrainian troops have now moved back into the city, liberating um, citizens there. And the second big thing that happened was two missiles, I believe, landed in Poland, killing two people. And the snap reaction of the world was, obviously, these were errant Russian missiles, and this is, you know, another stain on Putin's legacy. Turns out, at least according to American officials uh, and NATO officials, that these were Ukrainian air defense missiles that landed in the wrong place. And that, of course, was a consequence of Russia raining down a bunch of missiles on Ukraine, which feels like their new strategy. So did they start to launch missiles after pulling out of Kyrgyzstan? Is it because they're transitioning from a ground war to an air war? What's happening? Man, you're really on top of the news out of uh, out of Ukraine. <laughs> you should just do this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the short answer is yes, this is all related. Basically, on November 9th, they waited till the U.S. midterms because they didn't want to give Biden a victory going into the midterms. They've been quite explicit about this. The, the Russian government announced that it was pulling out of Ukraine by November 11th. They completed the pullout and you saw Ukrainians jubilantly celebrating the liberation of their city. And as with other places that have been liberated from Russian occupation, you of course heard pretty dark stories. At the same time, leaders of the G20 countries of which Russia is a part. We're meeting this week in Indonesia. Putin, ahead of the summit, said, oh, I'm busy washing my hair. I won't be able to go because I'm just so incredibly busy. And I think it's because, well, I'm not the only one who thinks this, but because, you know, he got his ass handed to him at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, you know, when he was publicly scolded by Narendra Modi when he had to publicly acknowledge China's quote-unquote concerns with the war, when leaders of countries that he thinks are basically nothings like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan made him wait and publicly humiliated him, I think he was not eager 
for a repeat performance of that, especially with more important, in his mind, countries present and with his arch nemesis, the U.S. present. And instead, what Russia did to punish Ukraine for taking back Kherson and to remind the now G19 countries of Putin's presence, they rained down the most destructive barrage of missiles on Ukraine to date. They seem to start this every Monday. Every week starts with a Monday barrage that starts at rush hour um, all across Ukraine, across pretty much every single region, every major center. It kept going into Tuesday. Millions, literally, of Ukrainians were left without power, without heat, as winter has already started in that part of the world. You know, you're continuing to see images of Kiev, which is a bright, vibrant, beautiful city, including at night when it used to be beautifully illuminated, just pitch black and lit up only with, essentially with car lights. The errant missile that landed in Poland and killed two Polish citizens, which could have kicked off World War III because Poland is a NATO member and is uh, protected by Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which means that if Poland is attacked, then all other NATO members, including the United States of America, are obligated to step in and defend Poland. So my response as and everybody's response, as you mentioned, was, holy shit, these are Russian missiles. It looks like either they were deliberately or mistakenly sent into Poland, and now how is everybody going to respond? Very quickly, you had the U.S. and other NATO countries backpedal this and say they probably weren't Russian missiles, and it probably wasn't on purpose, and actually probably they were Ukrainian missiles. The Ukrainians said, no, 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 there were definitely Russian missiles, and then they themselves kind of backtracked and said, it's probably true that they were our air defense systems, according to the Ukrainian government. They were trying to shoot down one of these many missiles being sent from Russia or from occupied Ukrainian territory at a Ukrainian city. Because what we've seen during these massive airstrikes on Ukrainian cities is that Ukrainian air defenses are able to intercept quite a few of these missiles. As of this taping, I just saw a couple of clips that Zelensky is still kind of denying that these were Ukrainian missiles. He wants more Western support, more American support. He has for the whole time. I'm not saying he's like using this as an excuse to like, you know, browbeat the West into giving him more help. But is he risking his credibility a little bit with other world leaders by pushing back at the US and NATO and elsewhere saying like, I'm not convinced this was a Ukrainian missile. I don't know that he's risking his credibility from what I understand of the thinking in the White House and from what my sources have told me. They understand that he has his own interests. He is fighting an existential war. He wants a different set of things than the Biden administration wants. And there will always be a tension there. And sometimes it will spill out into the open and people will get annoyed with each other. But such is life. The last thing I want to ask you, speaking of the end of the war, Zelensky said he thought that the withdrawal from Kherson marks the beginning of the end of the war. Do you believe that? I think that depends because Zelensky has set a really high bar for how the war ends. And I don't think it's 
an unreasonable bar. It's returning territorial integrity to Ukraine. That means, which means returning even Crimea to Ukraine. It means the withdrawal of all Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. It means paying Ukraine reparations. It means the return of all Ukrainian citizens who have been exfiltrated, which essentially means kidnapped and brainwashed from Ukrainian territory. These are not unjust demands, but they're still a very high bar. And I don't know that the withdrawal from Kherson means that that is necessarily in the offing next. If anything, the Russian military has now has a natural kind of defensive barrier in the Dnipro River. They can now launch, if they want, an artillery barrage at Kherson and flatten it the way they did in Mariupol. They are now defending territory, which is easier to do than attacking and taking territory. It is going to be very hard for Ukraine to take back all that territory that it wants to take back. Ukraine counters by saying, we've done the impossible before. You've counted us out before. You thought we would fold to the Russians in three days back in February, and here we are. You thought we couldn't launch a counteroffensive, and here we are. You thought we couldn't take Kherson, and here we are. It's true, they have proven a lot of people wrong, and they think that they can continue proving people wrong. We don't know if that can continue, and they want to keep trying. I don't know what his timeline is, right? Like, does it mean that the Russians withdraw from Ukraine and it's the beginning of the end of the war in a year or in a month? Because the latter seems pretty unfeasible to me. And if it's in a year, I worry about the West's political support. I do have to say, you know, personally, and I'm not a military expert and I'm not the one writing checks, but I guess my tax dollars are paying for it, for these high Mars and stuff and the, and the javelins and whatever the fuck we're sending over there. But I don't think that there can be a peace here without justice. We tried to do that. We tried to freeze this conflict after 2014 and it didn't work. I come from a family of doctors. If you don't finish treating an infection and kind of stop your course of antibiotics midway, the infection will come roaring back and it might be resistant to that antibiotic in the future. Hi, mom. Hi, hi, Dina. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you need to finish the job. And personally, my personal opinion is that there can't be peace without justice. There has to be a just peace and a just conclusion for the peace to hold. I look forward to you writing more about this, Julia. Thank you so much for your insights as always. You're welcome. When we come back, Alex Bigler speaks to our very own Bill Cohan about his new book, Power Failure. everybody. This is Alex Bigler, and I'm here today with the red-hot author and Puck founding partner, William D. Cohan, the author of Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. If this book hasn't come across your radar yet, you are missing out. Peter Baker calls it seriously one of the best books I've read in years, a classic American story you won't soon forget. The Financial Times, of all places, are heralding it as a gripping chronicle and masterful history told with thoroughness and flair. In a review for The New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell calls it a book so comprehensive, it gives the impression that all that can be said about Jack has finally been said. 
Now, I could go on and on and on, but our listeners don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from the man himself. So I am so happy to say that Bill is here with me. Welcome, Bill. Well, I am happy to be here, Alex, of course, with you, and it's a pleasure. Everyone knows that the Friday segment is the most hard-hitting news and interview segment on the powers that be. So I hope you're you're buckled up because my first question is coming fast and furious, which is, do you have any fun writing idiosyncrasies that you can share with us? Is there a pen that you must use when you're sitting down to write or a chair you must sit in, mm. the whiskey you must drink? Mm. We mm. want to know everything. The only thing I would say uh, sort of technique wise is that, um, you know, I had an important professor, a guy by the name of Mel Mencher at Columbia School of Journalism. He used to say, you know, he was great. Uh, I had him for the full year. Most people were scared to death of him. But for some reason, I got along great with him. Uh, I was also the youngest person in the class. And I don't know, maybe I was more impressionable. But he used to say that you can't write writing. You can only write reporting. And uh, it took me a long time to figure out, you know, what the hell he meant by that. But I, eventually I did figure out. And what it meant was that, you know, you have to do the reporting before you can do the writing. In other words, you you have to, like, go out there and talk to a lot of people, in my case, in writing this book, uh, before you can, you know, or you know, dig into uh, records or documents or make sure you've compiled the extraordinarily voluminous journalistic uh, record of General Electric before you can start writing. So uh, really, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of a firm believer in not only sort of the documentary evidence, the journalistic evidence, but, you know, interviewing as many people as will possibly talk to me. Now, a lot of people don't want to talk to me, um, but a lot, a lot do. And so I, before I, you know, can start writing, I need to, you know, have the interviews done and then transcribed. Uh, and then I'm kind of off to the races. I know you're getting a lot of questions about the content of the book. I hope you don't mind if I ask you a question about the cover design of the book, because I learned a fun fact, which is you had an, an interesting collaborator in coming up with the cover of the book. Do you mind expounding on that? Of course. It takes a village, as Hillary Clinton uh, once famously said. But, you know, my village is very small. And uh, one of the key uh, people in my village is my son, Quentin, who once I sort of came up with the title of Power Failure, he was the one who thought that one of those famous, you know, black and white shots of Rockefeller Center when GE owned NBC, uh, which was uh, after 1986, uh, you know, and therefore GE was one of the largest tenants in 30 Rock. And so its name, you know, appeared at the top of 30 Rock. Uh, you know, it used to be. RCA, then it was GE, now it's Comcast uh, that's sitting up top there, of all things. So he thought sort of like, uh, I don't know whether, you know, Edward Steichen or something is the right photographic reference, but sort of a black and white uh, photograph with the lights at, relatively at night or at dusk with the lights on in, you know, in Rockefeller Center 
with the GE logo up at the top of 30 Rock would be the way to go. And so, you know, that's what uh, that's what we did. And um, it was a great idea. And then we, of course, superimposed the GE logo over that and some interesting coloring. And it made, uh, you know, for a great cover. Well, I would say that obviously, you know, people should read the book. But if at minimum someone is looking for a book that will look very handsome on their bookshelf behind a Zoom screen, I can't think of a book that I would recommend more than Power Failure. Well, and that's why it's also like an incredible, you know, stocking stuffer for the holidays. Mm -hmm. You know, even you might want to have it, you know, on your Thanksgiving table, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of something that you're thankful for uh, this Thanksgiving, (laughs) you know, along with your turkey and stuffing and yams. I just love saying yams. Yeah, it's a great word. Frankly, I'm not sure it would fit into his stocking at 700 pages, but I I agree it would make a fantastic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. gift. So... At our book party, you also told me an anecdote that had me, I think, howling and talking about the whole cab ride home, which is a twofold story. It's the story of that actually ends up in the book, but a, a story that your editor, I believe, was trying to get you to cut from the book. And this was the one story where you said, kill my other darlings, but do not kill this one. Do you mind giving us a sneak peek of what that story was? Sure. You know, as I mentioned at the party, uh, this was a long manuscript. I'm not even sure what I was thinking when I uh, decided to bite this off because I I felt it was very important to start in 1892, the start of the company, to get a sense of its its DNA and how the strands of its DNA, uh, you know, tied together and were brought up to the present day. So this is a long book and they had to get an outside editor who happened to be one of my uh, former editors at Fortune, who was fabulous, guy by the name of John Brody. And, you know, he was, of course, doing his level best for weeks to cut the book down to something, you know, reasonable, which, you know, something Caro-like. Reasonable is in the eye of the beholder. What's reasonable mean? My view on this, Alex, is if you're uh, like a topic and you're enjoying the book and it's a great flowing narrative, all of which I hope Power Failure is, and I think it is, more of it is great. Why would you want it to end? Like, you know, I loved the Bad Blood, the story about Theranos, but I thought it was kind of a little clipped and I could have had a lot more. So in answer to your question, uh, John thought we should just sort of leave on the cutting room floor the story of Jeff Immelt hiking up Kilimanjaro. This is when he was uh, CEO of GE. This, he did this because his daughter, his one child, uh, was graduating from Hamilton College. And he basically said to her, you know, in effect, you know, I haven't been the greatest uh, uh, father this whole time because I've been the CEO of GE, which is a big job. So now that you've graduated from college, you know, we can go anywhere you want and we can do a trip together and it'll be like a father-daughter trip. So, you know, I think he thought she was going to say, oh, let's go to Hawaii or let's go to Bali or let's go to Paris or something. But she really, I think, surprised him by saying, I want to go climb Kilimanjaro. Jeff was not, you know, as I said, a mountain climber, probably not in the greatest shape, even though he'd been a football player at Dartmouth. And so they began to plot that trip out and tried to get into good shape. But Jeff thought it was very important because he was the CEO of GE, after all, that he had to have (laughs) with him on the trip 
the GE security guy, the guy who was in charge of <laughs> Jeff's security, the guy who sort of, you know, arranged for his flights on the private jets and organized meetings in international locations and made sure that Jeff's schedule was not too clogged up. And he insisted that this fellow go with him uh, and be at his side uh, hiking up hilly. <laughs> and of course, this guy was the last guy who ever wanted to do anything like this, begged Jeff to not to not insist that he go. And Jeff kept, on the contrary, insisting that he had to go. <laughs> and so uh, long story short is this guy, you know, went started hiking up. You know, I think the hike up was like uh, nearly a week. And this guy made it like three or four days and then just basically said, I'm not going anymore. I'm, if I go anymore, I'm going to die. Uh, you know, he lost like 20 pounds in three or four days uh, and had a long period of time recovering from that. And, uh, you know, I just I just thought it was great. I wanted to include it. So I, of course, put it back in and I'm glad I did. Although uh, one reviewer, he basically, I think, liked the book, but specifically pointed out the book's length. And one of the, the anecdotes that he specifically pointed out to kind of make fun of was the Kilimanjaro and the way I described the whole trip uh, up Kilimanjaro in clip sentences. And so he thought it would be really funny to you know, take a paragraph of those clipped sentences to show the excess you know, of detail that I had gone to in describing uh, Jeff Immelt's uh, character. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, Mr. <laughs> Reviewer, but I love that <laughs> anecdote and I'm glad it's in there. Well, as a... William D. Cohan, super fan. I am biased, but I think it's anecdotes like that that really give the the color to the overall picture of the book, first of all. And second of all, I really aspire for us this level of um, self-aggrandizing that someday Puck gets to the point where where we feel important enough that we can force someone to hike Kilimanjaro with us. So, Phil, I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. Thank you for talking about power failure. Thank you. And I appreciate the tough questions. They're pointed and you know, I really had to stretch to make it through. So thank you. you. You've learned your craft well. Thank you. Yeah. I hope that you toss and turn thinking about these questions for the next two weeks. Uh, <laughs> I hope I hope I don't get canceled as in answering these questions, yeah, think, but, you know, I'm going to take that risk. I think we'll be okay. And if you are looking for something to get for the holiday season, this is a, a Alex Bigler personal recommendation. Go out and get yourself power failure. You're, you're not going to regret it. So thanks so much, Bill, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 